friends, Casey Smith here, coming at you with a bonus episode of This is Harbor Network. We're sharing a live conversation today between Jamal Williams and Jarvis Williams. Jamal is the lead pastor of Sojourn Church Midtown in Louisville, Kentucky, and the president of Harbor Network. Before receiving the call to Sojourn, he pastored Forest Baptist Church in Louisville from 2008 to 2015. Jamal received his bachelor's degree from Michigan State University, a master's from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, as well as his doctorate in black church leadership from Southern Seminary. Jamal is happily married to Amber, and they are the parents of five beautiful children. Jarvis Williams is an associate professor of New Testament interpretation at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and a preaching pastor at Sojourn Church Midtown alongside Jamal. He is the author of several books, including One New Man, The Cross and Racial Reconciliation in Pauline Theology, as well as a commentary on Galatians, which is part of the New Covenant Commentary series. His work has also been featured in Christianity Today and the Gospel Coalition. He is married to Anna and his father to Jaden. Jamal and Jarvis discuss several topics, from his call to ministry, to how he became an avid reader, as well as his new book, Redemptive Kingdom Diversity, a biblical theology of the people of God. It's a great conversation, so stay with us. Hello, friends. This is Jamal Williams here with the Harbor Network on This Is Harbor Network. We are glad that you uh, could join us for this episode. And today I have a special friend with me, Dr. Jarvis Williams. Dr. Williams is an associate professor of New Testament interpretation at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. He is a scholar. His research uh, focuses on soteriology and the Second Temple Judaism and the Second Temple context of Paul's soteriology, um, also on the Book of Romans, Galatians, and Ephesians. He's also a pastor. He serves as a preaching pastor at Sojourn Church uh, Midtown, where I have the joy of pastoring. And he is a prolific author. The Lord has uh, blessed him to be a blessing to many with uh, numerous of books. Uh, one of my favorite is his uh, commentary on the book of Galatians. Um, he's also written in uh, the area of uh, diversity and racism uh, with a great book called One New Man, as well as a, a book geared at equipping parents to talk to their children about uh, race. So I'm thrilled to have uh, Jarvis with us today. Um, we're going to talk about um, his new book, called Redemptive Kingdom Diversity. But today we want to get to know him a little more as well as talk about his new work and why it matters to harbor church planners. Jarvis, good to see you, brother. Good to see you, brother. It's a joy to be here with you. Yeah. Well, welcome uh, to the podcast. Uh, me and you, we go way back. Way we back. We go back some time. I want to say it was in maybe 2006, 2008 when I first met you. I was a student in your Greek class and uh, had the joy of having an early class with you. <laughs> and uh, it was such a great experience, man. Mm -hmm. And to think that all these years later, that the Lord has just cultivated a, a friendship between us and we get to co-labor alongside of each other. Yeah. Yeah. I remember 
those days fondly. I remember you were single when you first came to campus, and then uh, I think you were engaged shortly thereafter. But I had you, I think, right before you were married in that course. And I was on my way out as a PhD student. I had the privilege of teaching that one course, and I graduated that next semester. But one of the one of the joys I remember about our time together was you were always very encouraging to me, and just little be words of encouragement along the way as I was heading out. And providentially, even though I went and taught at a, at a university for four years and you were still doing your work at the seminary, we would see each other from time yeah. to time, and you would just pick right up with that encouragement again. <laughs> and by God's sweet providence, I'm now so fortunate to serve under your leadership and with you as lead pastor. You're my pastor here at Sojourn Midtown. It's just a joy to see what God's doing in your life and to, to be a small part of, of that. So I'm so grateful for you, brother. Yeah, I'm grateful for you as well. Now, remind me, you and Anna have been married for how long? 20 years. 20 years. Wow. And Jaden, your son, is how old? 13. Turned 13. 13 in June. Okay. So you would have had Jaden, yeah, right after we probably met in 2006. Yeah. he, Jaden, if I remember correctly, the week I defended my dissertation, my wife told me she was pregnant. Wow. So we had a double celebration yeah. uh, that week. And it was 2007, I believe. And then he was born in 2008 in June. So he's 13 now. Yeah. You know, here at Harbor Network, one of our core values is the value of diversity. And you have brought so much to uh, that subject, uh, not only here in, in Louisville and here at our church uh, at Sojourn Midtown, but just nationally. Uh, the Lord has really used you amongst many things, as I said before, a scholar in uh, Pauline theology in the New Testament, but amongst many things to really be able to speak to that issue with clarity, with biblical precision, and in a way that is unifying and, and upbuilding. So I'm really looking forward to uh, diving into uh, that subject a little more and talking about your new work. But before we do, uh, tell us a little bit about how you came to faith yes, and how you ended up at the seminary and as a professor. Yes. Great question. I uh, grew up in a small town in Eastern Kentucky, and it was a religious community. There were a lot of practicing Christians in the area, but there were also some cultural Christians in the area. So I always had a sense that there was a God and that Jesus was that God. And I played baseball for a Christian high school baseball coach who witnessed to me and shared the gospel with me. Um, I heard the gospel on numerous other occasions as well uh, growing up. But it wasn't until my, my senior year of high school, when I was 17 years old, a dear Christian friend of mine had a tragic car accident. Mm. And it just so happened I had to drive by that accident to go home. So I went right by the, the scene of the accident. And she fought for her life for about four days in the hospital. And during that period, um, uh, some friends of mine and I from our community would go to the hospital and see her and be able to talk with her mom and her father. And her mother was a strong believer. She was also my English teacher. And her pastor, who became my pastor, would come to the hospital, share the gospel with us young people. We would pray. First time I ever sang the song, heard the song Amazing Grace, was in the lobby of the University of Kentucky Medical Center as we young people circled around with the pastor and sang Amazing Grace and prayed together. And after she died in March, if I remember correctly, shortly thereafter in April, I told my pastor's son, with whom I played baseball, that I wanted to have a conversation with him. And so my, my future pastor, he called me or I called him and I said, you know, I want to be a Christian, but I don't know what that means. 
I've called out to the Lord to save me, but what is there anything else I need to do? And he explained to me with clarity once again the gospel that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, God raised him from the dead. If I give my life to Jesus, I can be saved. There's no magical feeling that I'll experience. There's no shouts from heaven that I'll hear, but there's confidence that if I trust in Christ, I can be saved. And I did, gave my life to Jesus uh, at the end of my senior year of high school in April, and I was baptized that summer and uh, became the first African-American member in the history of that particular Southern Baptist Church in a rural town in Eastern Kentucky. A year later, my uncle became a Christian and became the second African-American in the church's history. Shortly after that, however, I went off to a, a, a college to play ball. I was, I was an athlete, and I, I wanted my whole childhood to play Division One basketball. It wasn't good enough for Division One basketball, yeah. and I wasn't a very good student when I was in high school, so I, my options were limited. But I was also a baseball player, so what I did was I went to a little junior college and played uh, basketball for a week. <laughs> said this is this is not for me, and I played baseball for that semester. Yeah. But during that time, the Lord was doing some things in my heart. I had this urge to read the Bible more. I didn't really like reading when I first became a Christian. But I wanted to read the Bible more. I had this desire to preach. I didn't know what that meant. I had this zeal for evangelism. I'd only been a believer for a few months. So I decided, after talking with my pastor, that I was going to pull out of that particular educational context. And I told him, I think the Lord's called me into the ministry, but I don't know what does that mean? What do I do? And this man, he was a a mentor to me, a a dear father in the ministry. He uh, walked with me. He brought me and another brother who was actually going through the same thing from the congregation, brought us before the church, and he said, these two young men are being called into the ministry, and we want to support them and give them opportunities to see if this is real. So immediately, he taught me how to preach sermons. He let me go on uh, hospital visits with him, and he allowed me to see some of the more practical sides of ministry, caring for people in moments of crisis and those sorts of things. But one of the things he emphasized to me was that I needed to get the best theological education that I could Mm. to prepare me for Christian ministry. Because again, I'd only been a Christian for a few months. So we began to visit colleges to go to to finish up my training because I only spent a semester at one community college and then went another semester at a different community college back home. So eventually we landed, I landed at a small Baptist college in Lexington, Kentucky, okay. which uh, which doesn't even exist anymore. I was there for a couple of years and financially it folded. Mm-hmm. But the Lord worked it out for those of us who were uh, there who wanted to transfer up to Boys College, uh, the undergraduate school of, of Southern Seminary, that we could transfer and our credits would transfer. So I went to uh, Boys College my senior year of college and was part of the first four-year graduating class wow. because it had just become an institution, the, the undergraduate school, that moved from being a two-year school to a four-year school. And those guys who and those women who were at the school for the undergraduate for the first three years, their class graduated. My first year was their fourth year. Okay. So I graduated as part of that first four-year class, yeah. even though I transferred in. Yeah. And uh, I knew I was wanted, I wanted to go to Southern Seminary. For me, an undergraduate degree was a key to seminary, a key mm-hmm. to graduate school. Uh, so I went to seminary, did an MDiv in biblical and theological studies because I wanted to be a pastor. Uh-huh. I thought I want to be a pastor. I want to learn the skills that I think I need to be able to handle the scriptures faithfully and uh, to go shepherd. But as I was coming to the end of my MDiv, I was sending out resumes, uh, all different kinds of churches, uh, the same theological convictions, but different ethnic 
congregations of different ethnicities. And there were no bites. I was only 25 years old. I'd only been married for a couple of years. I didn't have any kids. And I guess back in those days, I guess the key was you had to be 30 with some kids <laughs> before church would consider you to be their pastor. But I think the Lord was working in that because I did a THM after my MDiv in New Testament. And in that THM program, the Lord opened up the opportunity for me to teach as a graduate assistant for a professor. And I said, you know, I think maybe this is the ministry to which the Lord is calling me in addition to pastoral ministry. Yeah. But that door was not opening, but the academic doors kept opening. And also I was serving in my local church and I was teaching Sunday school. So I, I did that. I did a PhD and uh, the Lord opened up doors for academic ministry immediately after my, really before I graduated with my PhD, my wife worked with a sister-in-law of a dean of a university, mm. Christian university, and they needed a New Testament professor. So I put in my resume and I started teaching as an adjunct there. And eventually I got a full-time job that was waiting for me before I graduated with my PhD. Taught there four and a half years. And, and then the Lord worked it out providentially for me to come back to Southern Seminary to be able to, to teach there, supervise PhD students, teach MDiv students. And uh, one of the sweet things the Lord also did is after I finished my PhD, he opened up pastoral opportunities. Mm. And particularly being able to serve here with you at Midtown yeah. uh, as a, also a professor is just one of the great joys of my life and my wife's life to actually be in a place where we are seeing this vision for redemptive kingdom diversity being worked out on the ground with real people, uh, real flesh and blood, with people that we do life with together. That's good. Well, we are, are so glad to have you as a pastor. You are uh, accommodation to the full. I mean, just such a, a great writer, I always tell you, so clear. And you're also a pastor. You have counseling cases here. Mm, you mm. Uh, walk with members. You're on the ground. You're a great encourager. You, you preach regularly. And so it's great to be able to talk to someone who is in ministry and doing the work um, as well as writing about it, which as I was reading your book, I think is why your book is just going to be so meaningful to pastors within our network, because you're not just giving these ideas on an academic level, but you are able to explain them and, and to show on the ground why they make a difference in a practical way. So let me ask you a quick question. So how do you go from a, a high school student that didn't really care about academics <laughs> to uh, being a, a professor and scholar uh, as you are. What what mm. kind of clicked? At what stage did you say, man, I need to take this serious and mm. this is a gift that I have? That's a great question. Well, my home pastor was a great model for the importance of embracing the reality that when Jesus redeems the body, he also redeems the mind. Mm that uh, I have a responsibility as a believer to develop my mind, my thinking. And that requires putting in the work to read and to be challenged in my thinking. And so one of the things he did right away, once I came to the understanding, and he came to the understanding as well, and the church affirmed that the Lord was calling me to the ministry, he gave me opportunities to preach, but he also said, you need to read mm. books. You need to develop your theological understanding. You need to develop your understanding of Scripture. And of course, the, the most important book I needed to read more of was the Bible. So I think, honestly, for me, it was having a pastor who modeled the importance of studying and reading. He was always giving me books. Even before I took one class of theology yeah. at a Bible college and, and in seminary, he was giving me books to read about preaching, books to read about prayer, yeah. books to read on faith, and some books to read on issues like 
doctrine of election and things of that nature. And he just instilled in me this hunger mm. to read. And then, you know, the, the, I think the unique thing about my experience in the faith was my growth in my faith happened most of it simultaneously with my educational journey. So I was converted in 1996 and went to a secular college, two different secular colleges for a couple of semesters. But then my second year of college, I was in theological education and that was my second year of being a Christian. Yeah. So as I was growing in my faith, I was also thrust into theology classes with people who had been Christians for a long time and knew the lingo. Yeah. And so that kind of forced me to, to do even more work, to be able to be competent in the classes. But I think the Lord used this dear brother to instill that desire into me. Yeah. It's so, it's so uh, powerful. I think it's a great reminder for Harvard pastors to remember the impact that we can have mm -hmm. on younger Christians, both men and women, who mm -hmm. the Lord may be calling um, into vocational ministry. In the same way, I had a pastor in college who just slowed down, who poured into me, who challenged me to, to think and to read. And I remember my dad was a church planner, specifically having a young man come and preach at his church and afterwards spending some time with him. And he mm. was the first person that told me about seminary and how uh, he went away and learned and got to study the Bible and as he accepted his call. So, so important, pastors, that we are uh, making sure we're paying attention to those who are younger in our congregation and that we're giving them a vision for developing their mind mm. as well. So let's talk a little bit about your new book, which I'm really excited about. I saw uh, somewhere an article that talked about how it is one of the most anticipated books mm -hmm. to be coming out this fall in the Christian sphere. And so the title of the book is Redemptive Kingdom Diversity. Uh, talk to me about why that term, what does it mean? Yeah, unpack that a little bit for me. Yeah, I first heard the phrase kingdom diversity from my good friend, Walter Strickland, Dr. Walter Strickland, who teaches theology at Southeastern Seminary. And I think I'd always, uh, as I began to grow in my faith, I affirmed the idea of kingdom diversity, but didn't have a concept mm -hmm. to attach that truth to. And, and I heard that phrase from Walter and I thought, okay, yeah, this is what I'm trying to say. This is what I'm trying to do. But then also I thought what would be helpful was to add the redemptive piece to it. Yeah. I think the phrase kingdom diversity assumes redemption, but I wanted to make it explicit in the book that I'm doing, especially as the race conversation has taken on a life of its own. Yeah. People mean different things by, by what they say. And, and so I wanted to make sure that it was clear that my vision that I'm trying to outline in the book is a vision that's grounded in God's vertical, horizontal, and cosmic work uh, in Jesus Christ for every tongue, tribe, people, and nation, and for the world. And so the kingdom diversity piece is, is that God is building a kingdom, and that kingdom is diverse, uh, male and female, Jew and Gentile, different economic classes. Uh, and He's forming that kingdom, that community of people, by the saving action of His Son, Jesus, that Jesus' wrath-bearing death for our sins, His victorious resurrection from the dead, and the fact that Jesus is also recreating the cosmos and these Jews and Gentiles whom he is saving by faith and to whom he gives the Spirit, they are signposts that God's cosmic redemption, regeneration of the whole world that's yet to come has already begun right now because Jesus is risen from the dead. Yeah. But also we have the Spirit living in us as an attestation to this cosmic reality yeah. that we wait. And so all of that is redemptive yeah. and then the kingdom diversity piece. So uh, Walter helped me have a phrase for what I was trying to do. 
and, and trying to say, and then the redemptive piece, as I began to do more work on soteriology, it just seemed natural to, to make it explicit yeah. that this is rooted in Jesus, yeah. uh, not in human imagination, mm. but in God's vision from yeah. Genesis to Revelation. And if you notice, by the way, it's redemptive kingdom diversity, colon, mm. a biblical yeah. theology yes. of the people of God. Yeah. So I'm tracing this idea from Genesis to Revelation with an eye toward providing applications for the theology for how the people of God ought to live Mm -hmm. and how to think about racism and race and ethnic division in our particular unique, diverse social locations. Mm -hmm. That's great. And uh, you, you know, really do go from Genesis to Revelations. It will be just a helpful piece for pastors in the network just to have on their shelves as they're preaching through books of the Bible Mm. and uh, making sure that we are able to tap into that theme that we see throughout the book. Uh, So you also often talk about the gospel, right? Being vertical, horizontal, and cosmological. Unpack that for me a little bit and then apply to um, how this robust, holistic gospel can uh, impact Harbor churches. Mm. Yes, that's a good, good question. I, I think, you know, of course, there's so much we could say about the gospel. We, as you know, you, you led us to have a, a whole sermon series where we talked about the gospel, race, yeah. and justice, and and we said a lot. But there's more that we could say. But the gospel, the word gospel, basically means good news, and the the verb that's often used in in the New Testament means to announce the good news. And so it, it has something to do with announcing good news. And that's a word that was used in the ancient world in secular sources to talk about a, an announcement of some sort. But in the New Testament, and in the Old Testament as well, where the, the word is translated into Greek, you have uh, this announcement specifically connected to God's saving action. And so this good news is wrapped up in what God is doing for individuals and for the world in Jesus Christ. And I think as you look from Genesis to Revelation that you have a vision of redemption and a vision of the gospel that is vertical, horizontal, and cosmic. By vertical, I mean that God has acted in Jesus to restore everything that Adam and Eve lost in the garden. And one thing that was lost was humanity's relationship with God. So Jesus Christ dies on the cross, absorbs the wrath of God for sinners, and God raises him from the dead. Jesus is counted as guilty, even though he is not guilty. He becomes the guilty one so that the individual sinner can have Christ's perfect righteousness reckoned and counted to our behalf by faith. That's a vertical experience whereby God, the sinner who is guilty because of his or her sin and separated from God, they're declared to be not guilty. And this relates to issues of repentance and turning from sin and justification by faith. This also speaks to the need for the individual sinner to have a personal conversion experience. That's vertical. God promises when sin enters creation in chapter 3, he curses the serpent, the woman, and the ground. But he also promised that he's going to restore all of that. And the restoration agenda that God has is to crush the seed of the serpent by means of the seed of the woman. And Jesus is the seed of Abraham, the seed of David, the ultimate seed of the woman, the new Adam, if you will, who's making the individual relationship between God and man right by faith in Christ. Vertical aspect of the gospel. The horizontal aspect of the gospel speaks to the fact that in Jesus Christ, God is also uh, reconcile Jews and Gentiles, every tongue and tribe and people and nation to one another by faith in Jesus. 
So that text like Ephesians chapter yeah. 2, 11 through 22, Galatians 3, 20, and other passages makes the point that Jews and Gentiles in Christ Jesus are now this one new man, this one new humanity, transformed to be a new people, but filled with many different people. Mm -hmm. So ethnicity is still there, and it's beautiful, and diversity is apparent. But the power of this redemption is, yes, the individual sinner is converted, and his relationship with God is restored, and God and, and the sinner is reconciled by faith in Jesus. But God is also in Christ reconciling human beings who are also separated from one another because of sin. So that Jews and Gentiles, and everybody who is not a Jew is a Gentile, mm -hmm. that in Christ Jesus, they become brothers and sisters. There's this kinship that we share, this horizontal reconciliation that we can now rightly relate to one another. And we must, and we are commanded to do that because this is a part of God's saving action in Jesus. Mm -hmm. And then thirdly, this cosmic peace, it speaks to the fact that part of the good news is, is that God is restoring the entire creation, yeah. that the destination for those who are converted, yeah. for those who are reconciled to one another, is the new heavens and the new earth. We are awaiting Jesus Christ to come from heaven to earth to restore in total, perfectly, this fallen world, to recreate this world, to be like Eden, but better. Mm. But here's the beauty of the good news, that that future hope for which tongues and tribes and peoples and nations await in Christ has already invaded this present evil age right now by the power of the Spirit, mm. because Jesus is risen from the dead. So when individual Jews and Gentiles are living in reconciliation toward one another by the power of the Spirit, we are signposts, emblems. Mm. We are, say it this way, proclaiming yeah. that the future restoration of creation that's not yet fully realized has already begun in part right now. Mm -hmm. And an evidence of that is walking in spirit and power, love for one another, yeah. seeking the flourishing of our neighbor, Christian neighbors and non-Christian neighbors. Yeah. Because as we love our neighbors, regardless of ethnicity or ethnic demogra or, or, or demographics or socioeconomic standings or education, as we love our neighbors by the power of the Spirit, we are giving an evidence of the fact that God has invaded this world and has already begun to inaugurate this future restoration in Jesus Christ. And we taste it in part now. Yeah but we realize it in full in the future, but it's already begun yeah. in the power of the Spirit. That's great. That's phenomenal. Thank you. Yeah, I, I know that that's going to fuel our pastors and uh, members of Harbor as they, as they listen today. As you think through this redemptive kingdom of diversity, and as you think about this big, beautiful gospel uh, that you just preached and that Harbor ministry leaders and, and members believe, man, what's your hope? What is your hope that the Lord would do through this book, what is your hope that the Lord would do through his churches as it relates to just this vision of redemptive kingdom diversity? Yeah, that's just a great set of questions. You know, I have a lot of hopes. You know, one hope is, is that at a practical level that people would actually read the book. Mm -hmm. and, and if they read the book, my prayer is, is that the Lord would use it to help churches, believers, uh, develop a vision that is rooted in God's saving action in Jesus that is outlined from Genesis Revelation for the redemption of tongues and tribes and peoples and nations. And also my hope is that I would be making a helpful contribution to a way forward mm. in current racial discourse. Yeah. It is my 
uh, belief that we've got to do much better than, than what we're doing now. There's no progress, no change that's going to take place if people are, are just fighting with each other, shouting over each other, and trying to tear down each other. I want to build up what Christ wants to build, and I want to not build up what Christ wants to destroy. And I want to offer a redemptive vision that gives us, that talks about the truth mm. of racism and the reality of it and the ways in which it works historically, individually, systemically, but also to offer redemption. And, and, and my hope is that Christians from a variety of different ethnic groups would see that they have skin in the game. We don't have the same experiences. We don't have the same set of resources. Mm. But we can have, to, to use George Yancey's language, we could have, we all have mutual responsibility yeah. to partner together to help each other flourish. And my hope is, is that the book will, in some small way, offer a better way forward mm. than you find uh, being offered uh, today in, in many Christian spaces. And, and it's a hope that I'm optimistic about that if Christians can get their minds around the power of the gospel and how the gospel needs to be not only preached, but applied and obeyed and worked out and how we need to use common grace and common sense mm -hmm. uh, and use resources that are at our disposal to help us care about the flourishing of our communities and to care about the well-being of, of our neighbor. My hope is that the Lord will use this book to instill that vision mm -hmm. into people from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. Well, brother, I believe that uh, your book does that. It beautifully gives us a, a biblical theology of the people of God. And you have uh, in chapter seven, one of this, the most powerful, practical, even comprehensive visions of how to move forward. Mm. Uh, you address so many issues from what we're saying with redemptive kingdom diversity and what we're not saying. Mm. Um, you talk about subjects such as white guilt and what is racism and whether or not minorities can be racist. You talk about um, just how this looks in a local context and and with, with feet on it. And so I'm just encouraged by that. And I hope that pastors as well as ministry leaders will see this book as a, as a resource and also as a ongoing encouragement mm -hmm. as they mm -hmm. uh, seek to uh, live out this redemptive kingdom diversity. Mm, uh, before we close, anything you want to close and, and say to Harbor Pastors as a as a, a means of encouragement? Yes, absolutely. Thank you for this opportunity to do that. I, one thing I want to say is is that certainly a, a multi ethnic church situation is one way you work out redemptive kingdom diversity. And I'm I'm so thankful that we had the opportunity to work that out here in a multi ethnic context. But one encouragement I would offer Harbor Network Pastors is. The book makes it clear that redemptive kingdom diversity is a vision that they can pursue even if there's not an opportunity for yeah. multi-ethnic church. Because the Christian community is a global community and, and, and churches that are not in multi-ethnic spaces can't become something that they're not mm -hmm. able to be, but they can still participate in the vision of redemptive kingdom diversity by praying for the nations, by leveraging and using their resources to bless their neighbors and in other churches. And that's the beauty, I think, of Harbor, where you have that happening. You have churches partnering together to help other churches. And those churches may be mono-ethnic churches, but yet have a passion for diversity. But those churches may be multi-ethnic churches. So my encouragement would be that if there are any pastors who find themselves 
in spaces that can't be multi-ethnic. Be encouraged because this vision is not limited to a multi-ethnic church context. It's a, a vision that includes the world. That's right. Great word. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, sisters, brothers, ministry leaders, pastors, for joining This Is Harbor Network. May you remember to rejoice with hope, be patient in tribulation, and to be constant in prayer. Until next time, God bless you. Thanks, Jarvis, for sharing your story with us. What a passionate reminder of the power of the gospel and that we are one in Christ. So with that, I leave you with this encouragement from Galatians 3, 25 through 29, where Paul writes, But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. All right, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider subscribing to our show and giving us a rating and review in iTunes. If you have feedback, please email us at podcast at harbornetwork.com. We would love to hear from you. This is Harbor Network is a production of Owens Productions. It's produced by me and Mark Owens. It's hosted by Ronnie Martin and me. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. And our music is by Mark Wallach and Aiden Blackbird. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon.